All right, everyone, welcome back to Critical Care Scenarios. Uh, I am Brandon Odo, back here with Brian Bowling. Hey, everybody. And um, we're going to do a, a special episode today. As you know, we typically run clinical cases, um, but we have at times broken out of our format to do something that's maybe particularly uh, topical and relevant. And unfortunately, this past year, that has mostly meant topics related to the COVID-19 pandemic. So as we're, you know, it's January now of 2021, hopefully we're starting to get towards the tail end of this pandemic. Now I, I say hopefully because I don't, I hate to jinx it, but we are starting to gradually roll out vaccination. So I think this is probably a, a reasonable time to start turning some of our attention from you know, the acute management of this disease to some of the maybe medium to long-term sequela that these patients are seeing. And uh, certainly, I think we don't have a good understanding of this. I mean, how could we? Um, there, is, there is no long-term yet. The longest that we've seen anyone have this disease is, you know, gets one day higher every day. But um, as we're waiting on some of this more robust evidence and kind of a stricter scientific understanding of this, at the very least, we can you know, get a little bit more of a clear picture of what it looks like on the ground level. You know, what patients are are going through, you know, the symptoms that they're seeing that maybe are persisting. So I think there's probably no better way to do that than by uh, by speaking with someone who's been there. So um, our guest today is Eve Leckie, uh, an RN and CCRN, um, perhaps better known to some of you as a brow of justice on Twitter. Um, uh, they who by the way, you go by pronouns of they and them. Um, uh, they're a very experienced critical care nurse, mostly in um, CT surgery units. Um, last worked in the CVCC over at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. But since March of last year, um, when they actually had a, an acute COVID infection, has actually been uh, disabled due to you know long-term symptoms uh, from the infection. So I, I thought that this would be a useful kind of glimpse into what that is looking like. Um, so Brian's going to walk us through some of what, what this looks like. Brian, you want to take things away? Yeah. Hey, Eve, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, so let's, I guess, so lots of people have pro probably know you from Twitter and have followed you. But um, for listeners who maybe don't know, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what your life looked like sort of before, um, let's say, February of 2020, when everybody's life got upended by this. Right. Um, so I was working as an RN in the cardiovascular critical care unit at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Um, what that means is we care for patients immediately following open heart surgery and other patients with advanced, you know, cardiac requirements primarily. And I did a typical 36 hours a week, you know, full-time position. I worked night shift and uh, we knew that COVID was coming, but we didn't know what form it was going to take. And from what I can tell, New Hampshire already had community spread at the beginning of March, and we just didn't know. It was something that was happening to other people far away that we were preparing for, 
In fact, um, a few days before I came down with symptoms, I got PPE tested uh, for our respirators at work because we knew that we were going to be making a, uh, a COVID unit. And they shut down, let's see, part of um, the MICU for the COVID unit and it ended up being the whole thing at the end. So I didn't think that I was going to see patients in working in the CVCC immediately, but that was actually what happened. I uh, discovered I was COVID positive um, in March and it was March 15th that work called me and told me I had had a significant exposure. And a few days later, I had a lot of symptoms. I tried to get tested, but at the time they were rationing tests. I don't know if y'all remember that. Um, and they would only test ICU patients. And the story might be different if I had gone to a different hospital. Um, because we now know that the effects of COVID-19 fell unequally across zip codes all over the country. But I didn't. I just went to the one ER over and over and over again um, until finally I was able to get a swab because my work was insisting that I get tested. And uh, the swab, uh, they did a full respiratory PCR. I still had a fever that day and the swab was negative. And that was three, almost four weeks post the onset of COVID symptoms. So what, what were your initial symptoms like? We've, we've seen lots of variable presentation of this, but. Right. Um, I had shortness of breath and severe muscle pain um, and joint pain. All of my joints were swollen. Um, I was having these low grade temps. I think the highest my temperature ever got was like 102. Um, I was crawling around the house because I had vertigo that was so severe that I couldn't stand up. I had no appetite, no sense of smell. Um, at one point I crawled to the couch and I laid there for, I think it was something like 13 hours. And then my partner was like, I need to help you do something. You need to go to the bathroom or something. And I... I honestly felt like if the house had been on fire, I would have just stayed there because I was that weak and was that sick. I couldn't, I couldn't lay flat. I couldn't sit up. <laughs> there were all of these, um, I was, you know, pretty significantly ill at the time. Now, w when you started having symptoms, did you, was this before you knew you'd been exposed? Um, the day that I found out that I was, had been exposed, I was, um, had this cough, but I have asthma, right? So I, I have cough all the time and I had just gotten over what I thought was norovirus. Like the week before I had had all these like gastrointestinal complaints and I was like, let's see, it was the muscle aches and pains were vague at the time, but I kind of felt achy, you know? And then it was three days later that I was, it was pretty obviously significantly ill. 
Okay. Yeah. So when you, so you thought you were getting over a previous infection. Did you, I mean, did you have any thought that I've got COVID or were you thinking this is just the flu or more norovirus or something else like that? Yeah. I thought that I was just recovering from my gastrointestinal problems and having a cough is not that big of a deal. And, um, but three days later when the muscle pain started, um, I've actually had the flu before. I've also had pneumonia before. This was not like either of those. And I thought, oh, oh no. So this is it. I really do have COVID. That's what Mm. this is. And so my thoughts were immediately like, when did I start actually having symptoms? And I'm not really sure, especially with like this back-to-back virus. So you said you initially tested negative. Correct. Um, When did you test positive finally? I never did test positive. What I finally got was an antibody test. Oh, okay. Which showed antibodies. Um, So. Yeah, I I have been swabbed now at this point for COVID five times. Only one of those times did they do like a full respiratory panel. Uh, some of the swabs have been, you know, the back of your throat through your nose. Mm-hmm. And some of the swabs have just been the mouth swab. Yeah, we know, um, especially early on, we were seeing a lot of false negatives from poor sampling. Um, you know, folks, if you've not had this test... Um, or done or performed this test, you may not understand just exactly what this entails. Uh, it's, it is an experience for sure. Um, do you, do you feel like, were you swabbed appropriately you think, or, um, I, I thought they were trying to get a brain biopsy. Yeah. I, that's, <laughs> that's what it feels like if you've not had it done. <laughs> it was, it was pretty significant. Um, yeah. I, I I honestly I don't know because even then I technically should have been like outside the window um of when you get the best results for the uh-huh. swab um after having have, had symptoms for almost a month at that point um and I don't like we I've had a lot of conversations with my physicians about you know this this idea that you are presumed positive, right? Okay. And then there was no testing because they were rationing testing and I didn't need an ICU. So I didn't get like actually swabbed until my symptoms were persistent. And by then it was really sort of outside the window. And so how much credence could we place on the negative swab? And if I didn't have COVID, what the hell did I have? Sure. I had something that was followed the track of COVID and is still affecting me today. And I did later test positive for antibodies. So uh, we are presuming that I had to have been positive. Mm-hmm. So you, you t- got an antibody test that showed that you have COVID antibodies. So like you said, presumptively you've, you've been exposed enough to make antibodies. Uh, right. And it certainly sounds like, you know, from what you're saying, you, it sounds like you were positive. Right. Um, you said you didn't, you weren't sick enough to need the ICU. What, what did your early course look like? You've sort of described some beginning symptoms, but where did it go from there? So um, my main problem was heart rate 
fluctuation. And I would watch my heart rate swing uh, with a portable pulse ox from like 45 when I'm laying down to 150 when I would stand up. And I went to the hospital for heart rate problems and they did not hospitalize me. And this, mind you, we're, we're at the time frame where there are hallway beds in the ER and right. there's nowhere to send anybody. And my O2 sat at rest in the triage tent was greater than 88%. So they uh, said, well, you are within our cutoff window um, for admission because of your low O2 sat and high heart rate. And they said, but you're not sick enough to go to the ICU at this time. So we're going to stick you in a hallway bed. And I left because I thought, I'm going to take up a bed for someone who is sicker. I had this real, at the time, I, I kept thinking that I wasn't that sick and that someone else needed it more, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I can do all of the things that you're going to do for me basically at home. I can prone at home. So I don't need to be here taking up a hospital bed, which now I have conflicting feelings about. And I think that I definitely probably should have stayed. Um, given how long my symptoms have lingered now. Mm -hmm. But um, I ended up on steroids four times in the first four months because of shortness of breath. And everyone kept saying, it's probably your asthma. It's probably your asthma. I couldn't bend over or stand up without um, near syncope. I did faint and actually fall several times doing both of those things. When my partner would take me to a doctor's appointment, I would pass out in the car when they would accelerate or stop because of the change in, I guess, forces. Mm -hmm. My vision would tunnel and I would tip over. Um, my hair fell out. My eyebrows fell out. My eyelashes fell out. Uh, my nails developed these really deep divots and they still have um, pitting marks on them. Uh, let's see. Um, the main thing that I remember is being extremely tired. I would be talking and would forget what I was saying in the middle of a sentence, which still happens from time to time. Um, but I was so short of breath that I could only get out a couple words before I'd have to stop and gasp for air. And it went on like that for months. <laughs> Um, in fact, I still have, um, I still have dyspnea at rest and now have chronic respiratory alkalosis and we're still trying to figure out why. So you mentioned steroids, um, mm -hmm. and this is when, what, where are we now in the timeline? We're still kind of March, April or? Um, so the steroids went through the beginning of June or end of May. It was okay. the last time I was prescribed those. Okay. So early early on in this, this is still when we're, you know, nationwide, we're talking about all sorts of kind of random potential therapies. Um, you know, uh, hydroxychloroquine was thrown around for a while. Um, convalescent plasma was thrown around for a while. Did you, uh, did you get any of these other kind of, um, I don't even know that experimental is the right word for it, but the, the sort of let's do everything we can and see what sticks approach. Did you get any, any therapies like that? 
So the HCQ, uh, mm-hmm. they started me on that in July. But they started me on that because I was still having pretty significant um, joint pain. And I went to see a rheumatologist. And I got, they did some lab work and some other stuff. And I got diagnosed with Sjogren's. And uh, the rheumatologist was like, we can try this Plaquenil. And some people respond to it and some people don't. And it's not like um, necessarily a frontline treatment for um, Sjogren's. But you're still having all of these joint problems. I had at the time oral lesions all the way around my mouth. Like just, I was actually... (laughs) trying to get my doctors to give me a magic mouthwash so that I could eat because my mouth was so painful. Um, and he put me on Plaquenil and I'm still on that. And, um, I think it has made a pretty big difference with my joints. Certainly better than the idea of being on steroids all the time. And who, who was mostly been managing all this or is it kind of a smorgasbord of doctors or... It is a smorgasbord of doctors. I have a hematologist, a gastroenterologist, a rheumatologist, a cardiologist, a pulmonologist who also does immunology, a physical therapy team, two neurologists, um, a PCP. I'm forgetting somebody. I, I have this sh- so many specialties, and that's part of the problem now is that there are so many specialties. I can imagine this is like a disease no one really, I mean, I guess you could say infectious disease owns it, but I, I mean, are you even still seeing anyone from there or did you ever? No. So I did initially see someone from infectious disease because I have had persistent fevers for, I mean, let's see, three days ago, I had a temp of 100.2. Like this just keeps happening and it's been going on for a long time. And so far they haven't found a source for it. I've had, I don't know three or four echoes at this point. Um, lots of blood work, a colonoscopy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that at some point in the future, when we have some better understanding of kind of what these normal sequela are, maybe then ID would be the people who knows all of that and can follow it. But now I'd imagine whenever something comes up, you just get referred to whoever, whatever specialty kind of is usually the person to handle that, right? So if you were right. whatever, short of breath, you go to pulmonology. And then if you have a fever, you go to ID and then so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned one thing, Brandon, you said the normal sequela for this. And I don't know about you, but from my experience, and my experience with managing these patients is very limited. Uh, and it's typically people who are in the sort of convalescent phase, but still have other critical illness. Um, and But from what I'm reading too, I don't know that there are normal, right? I think that's one of the things that's so frustrating about this disease is there's so many presentations and, you know, some people look like this and some people don't have any of those symptoms. They have a completely different set of symptoms. And I think that's one of the things that's helped making it hard for the general public to understand because, they say, you know, well, everything is COVID. You're blaming everything on COVID. Um, but Eve, I think you're you're showing us that, I mean, that's sort of true, right? Like there's, it can cause right. lots of different symptoms and lots of different issues that we still can't quite put our finger on. 
Right. And that's part of the part of the issue in obtaining care that sort of, I don't know, that feels satisfying to me at this point in my course is that because I have so many symptoms that are in so many different um, areas, there's a lot of resistance to believing that this could still be COVID. And um, even the like long hauler group, um, I talked to the pulmonologist who was over the long hauler group when I was about six months in. And she said, you know, you don't even fit our long haul criteria because most of our patients are better at the four month mark. And that tracks actually um, from everything that we're seeing with long hauler groups like the body politic and things like that, that there is a group of people who get desperately ill, um, but not so ill that they need the ICU. And then they still have symptoms for like four months and then they get better. But then there is a group of people who continue beyond that. And that's the group that I'm in. Mm -hmm. Most of my problems now are fatigue related blood pressure and heart rate problems. Um, right around the six month mark, I was having lots of neurological symptoms. Like I had um, pins and needles in my hands and my feet. I had new onset pin rolling. Um, it still happens. I'll be laying in bed and then one muscle in my arm will just start spasming. I've taken so many videos of this. Um, I started going to physical therapy in middle of July. And they told me that my joints, especially in my hips, were frozen which is pretty true because I spent months being unable to sit all the way up or lay flat. They thought that I had had a hospital stay because I couldn't, I could not stand all the way forward. My hip joints just wouldn't do it. And so I had to do a lot of physical therapy. I'm still in physical therapy. I got, let's see, eight weeks of iron infusion to get my ferritin up to low normal. And then they said, I'm going to have to get some more this year. I'm still dyspneic at rest. I've been diagnosed with POTS and I'm on imidodrine plus metoprolol to control it. Um, I've fallen several times due to weakness. I use a motorized scooter because I can't walk very far anymore. Um, we're hoping that the like brain fog and fatigue will clear over time, but we don't really know that it will. I still see my pulmonologist every two months. I'm on triple therapy for asthma. But here's the thing. I was already on that. Um, and a lot of people who developed COVID wound up on the singular and like in ICS and um, LABA and then added on Spiriva. Uh, I was already taking all of those. And so I think... Um, one of the things that we've learned through doing my PFTs through this course is that I no longer respond to bronchodilators, uh, where I used to. So there's some problem with my lungs. I have ground glass opacities. I have mild airway thickening. I have, I'm sorry, moderate airway thickening. I have, um, air trapping. And so the air trapping we would expect because of my asthma, but the other things, not so much. 
And they said that none of my larger airways are completely obstructed, but they're all affected. And we are presuming that this is due to COVID-19 because I've had CT scan, I've had uh, pneumonia previously, and they didn't, they said my results were completely normal. So. Hmm. So I know a lot of patients who present with sort of um, vague, somewhat unrelated symptoms that don't have a good explanation um, that seem to persist despite what we would normally assume. A lot of those folks have a hard time in this healthcare system because we don't know what to do with them. And so we sort of blow them off. Um, And there's a lot of, if you talk to people who are patient advocates or patients themselves who are in this situation, a lot of frustration with this feeling like they're not getting being heard by the system or by providers. Um, did, did you feel like you ever, ever felt like you experienced that? Or do you think that because COVID is such a thing right now that that ameliorated that a little bit? Um, I think it affected it a little bit, but I think that the discrepancy between what I see people saying who are in the healthcare field on Twitter and what I um, am experiencing sort of in real life is, is pretty accurate. You know how we have people on Twitter who are like, they're doctors and they're saying COVID is a hoax, you know. Mm-hmm. And then we have nurses who don't believe the vaccine is going to help you and all of these things. And then we have other people who are like, no, here's the science. Here's this. Here's that. And I'm running into the same thing in um, in the real world. Mm-hmm. There's, I'm still encountering resistance because I never had a positive test to show them. And the expert advice when I first got sick was assume that you're positive and wait it out. Like they said, if you don't need the ICU, then just wait it out. Well, mm-hmm. I did what I was told. And now, because I can't show a positive result, they're like, well, no one knows what you actually had, and we can't prove it either way. And who knows when you picked up enough, um, encountered the virus enough to develop these antibodies. We're not really sure. And I'm like, okay, so you said that I was presumed positive back then, and now you're saying that there's no way to know. Well, that's frustrating. I had, um, I didn't understand until I got this, how difficult it would be to obtain care and how little people will listen to you when your symptoms involve more than one specialty. Mm -hmm. One doctor told me that my symptoms couldn't possibly be due to COVID because even, you know, like we talked about long haulers are better by the four month mark. And another one said, you probably have conversion syndrome because there's no reason that you should still be in a power chair if you're going to physical therapy like you say you are, and because you didn't, I didn't spend time in an ICU. Mm-hmm. So why are you still so weak? And he was like, "It's pro- there's probably something wrong with your head. That's the problem. And I was like, I mean, so conversion syndrome is a real thing that people really have. And it really causes them a lot of distress in their lives. And you haven't even done any testing. So why are you telling me that immediately we're going to jump to you have some kind of psychological problem and that is why you're still so weak? It's interesting, I think, because the, like Brian said, I, I feel like a lot of the time when we see patients, and I mean, this is maybe more so in the outpatient setting, but when you have patients who have, you know, confusing symptoms, um, things that don't 
really match our understanding of disease in a clear way, we often default to saying, well, this is, you know, maybe something we don't know anything about. Maybe it's some version of, of all in your head or hopefully not made up, but, you know, somewhere in that spectrum of not really our thing. Um, and we like to fall back on, you know, on evidence or at the very least on physiologic models for saying, well, this, it makes sense that these things cause that, but if you have something else, it doesn't make sense that you would have that. But in this case, it's a brand new disease, so we don't actually have any of that. All we have is patient experiences. Um, so we're almost all forced to listen to what people are reporting, because, I mean, how could we, even if we wanted to, say, no, no, you're, you don't have that. <laughs> Not that we should ever be saying that, but I mean, there's no option here. Right. I mean, and like you said, like to, to even say, oh, you know, you should be better by four months. I mean, what a what a slim thread to try to pin on people. Right. I mean, what did we decide that like a week ago? <laughs> yeah. Right. I that's that's the problem. And I, I told them, I said, well, I feel like you should be listening to the evidence here. And the evidence in this case is you don't have it like from a, in a large scale, what you have is me. And I'm sorry that you're having to rely on my own report of my own experience to say, Oh, this is the way that this like disease can affect people. But we know that there are more people than just me that are having the same complaints. And it's very frustrating um, to be told that, we don't even know if you fit in the COVID group because you never had a positive swap. Okay, so we're basing all of everything that's wrong with me now on the fact that we had to ration testing at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, that is not my fault. <laughs> I, I am not responsible for the uh, government's completely inadequate response to this virus. And I've gone from an ICURN working full-time to someone who cannot bend all the way over without passing out and needs 12 hours of sleep to be able to sit upright in a chair for the rest of the day. Like, I had no idea how difficult it was going to be to obtain care. I had no idea um, how much time it takes to schedule appointments and follow up on lab results. And it's a full-time job. And this world is not organized to benefit people who are chronically ill, especially those with like brain fog and fatigue. And there's no safety net. And if my partner had not been able to take care of us, my kids and I would have been homeless. And I would have been powerless to do anything about it. Like I I have no idea what I would have done if I hadn't had someone in my life who could say, here, I will just take care of all of you. Have you been able to get disability through work? So... I got a one-time payment of less than $500, but they did pay for all of my healthcare bills for the past year. Um, They said that there was no way for me to prove that I had um, COVID-19 and um, I hadn't adequately proven that I was disabled. And my PCP sent so much stuff to them. Um, And I didn't, mind you, part of the problem is that I am not being seen by the facility that I worked for. 
And I think they would have been far more likely to just concede all of these things, although maybe not, if I was being seen by Dartmouth. But because I did not know that I had been exposed and I got on a plane and I flew to see my partner and here is where I got quarantined and here is where I got very sick. Like, I can't drive anymore. I mean, how am I going to fly back to Dartmouth to get care? So the, um, the third party company that does their disability, um, has not cut me a single payment except for one time for less than $500. Hmm. So I am, uh, you know, relying on my partner, which was not someone that I had intended to move in with. So here we are and I'm lucky. I'm really lucky. But what would I have done? I mean, I was the only person with a job and I was the one that was paying for everything. So if I lose my income, we've got nowhere to live. There's no, like, I, I definitely was too sick to try to access like housing assistance and food stamps and all of those things. There's no way I could have done that. I was so busy just like trying to live and I couldn't, I'm just now getting to the point where I can make more than one meal a week. So I mean, I, I, I feel really strongly that what I was facing was my children being, um, becoming wards of the state and me possibly dying. But fortunately I had someone who took care of us. Well, I think stories like yours certainly highlight the problems we're facing in this country when it comes to things like healthcare and paying for stuff, you know, the, the health insurance and the safety net, like you said, um, what other, in what other ways has this sort of changed your perspective on illness and nursing? And, you know, you've been on the other side of this for so long. How does this change your thought process or, or. So I honestly did not know how exhausting it was to be disabled. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I had zero understanding of how the system is set up to prevent people from accessing it. And so people who are chronically ill, especially people who are, have like sort of traveled this path before me, who have been chronically ill with symptoms that fall into multiple categories. um, It's they're tired. We're tired and we are frustrated. And it's like the system for prior authorization, except it's your own health on the line and you cannot think clearly. And you are, for the most part, powerless. And the people that the prior authorization which you need to access the medication that will literally keep you alive rests on the shoulders of people who do not believe that you are still sick. Mm -hmm. And it is, I have never felt so helpless in my life as I have um, having COVID. And that actually... If you know anything about like my history, uh, that's saying a whole lot. I I have never um, understood how easy it is for someone to just give up and decide it's not worth it. I cannot I cannot keep myself going, and I definitely. Um, the last time I went to the ER, I ran into that sort of like 
oh, this person's a frequent flyer um, attitude from the ER staff because there I was again with another cardiac complaint and there I was again with another complaint of shortness of breath. And I'm like my blood pressure is in the 80s and I'm diaphoretic and my heart rate's 140 and the nurse is like, wants me to walk all the way down the hallway to a room uh, without any telemetry. And I'm like, I'm coming in. I have, I have active chest pain right now. But because I didn't have ST elevations, mm-hmm. she treated me like I shouldn't be here. I was wasting their time. Um, this is also like the same um, ER visit. My heart rate, according to the pleth, went up to 249. And I actually fainted um, in the room. But I didn't call for help because I forgot that I was a patient and that I could use a call light. And they hadn't, they had put the leads on me, but they hadn't turned the leads on, like activated them on the screen. So all we have is the pleth, which if you count it out, reads 249. And then the pleth goes to zero. And that's the point at which I fainted. Fortunately, I woke back up. Imagine if I hadn't. Yeah. So the the fact that they totally dismissed me has a lot to do with um a lot to do with my frustration now. I think it's it's surprising and yet completely unsurprising if that makes sense as someone who's been on the inside of the healthcare system um that people would be so dismissive of you when there's objective evidence, right? It's one thing, you know, we hear these stories about people who come in and they just complain of pain or fatigue and there's really nothing, right? Their vitals are normal, their labs are normal, et cetera. But, you know, like you said, you've got abnormal vitals, you've got abnormal CT scans and and things like that. Um, And it's surprising, but like I said, also at the same time, not at all shocking um, that, that you're dismissed. Right. That's one of the most frustrating parts for me is that it's pretty clear that something is wrong. And mm-hmm. this is what my pulmonologist who also does immunologies keeps telling me. He's the one who keeps ordering further testing and further testing. He's like, you appear dyspneic most of the time. We know that you are short of breath. We know that your CT scan results don't really explain, but they're abnormal. Um, I have sent him video of me sitting in the chair, watching my oxygen percentage go from 91% to 93% and back down again for no reason that I, that I know of. And he's like, there's something else is going on and I don't know what it is. And I don't know that anybody could know what it is right now, but it is real and it's really happening. And I want to get to the bottom of it. Whereas I'm just now switching cardiologists because my cardiologist is like, you have POTS. Um, there's, there's no other explanation for what's wrong with you. And it doesn't seem that severe anymore. Just keep trying to take the metoprolol. And he's, he's done. Mm-hmm. He's like, uh, the chest pain that you have is very unlikely with your age and your risk factors. And I said, do you realize that having COVID um should at least be a risk factor for 
some kind of like, you don't know if I have an ischemic process. You haven't looked. And uh, he was like, I know, but you're 39. You're young. You're fine. And I'm like, I'm not fine. Actually, I'm super not fine. I can't work. I can't breathe. You know, I'm not fine. Mm -hmm. And he's like, eh, I think you are. Okay. Sure. So there's a lot of, a lot of resistance um, to, to sort of tying up any of these threads. I think a lot of physicians at this point, especially in the outpatient world, are tired, but they're tired in a different way than inpatient reality. And they're tired of seeing people who have these complaints that they can't really explain. And if we do a lot of testing, we still don't find anything. And they are very, very eager to tell someone um, who is perhaps not a guy that looks like them, right? Mm -hmm. That it's all in their head. Well, and I keep here and keep thinking during all this, and I've thought this before with some of my patients, but you know, you're a educated, um, you know, you're a healthcare provider. You're, you know, socioeconomically in a position of, you know, at least, you know, middle, middle class. Right. Um, and think about the trouble that you're having navigating the system, getting the insurance stuff paid, getting people to listen to you. Uh, I think about this all the time. And I think, how do my patients who, um, you know, have a, eighth grade education um, and live in a place where they may or may not have running water all the time. How do they possibly stand a chance of navigating stuff like this? I I don't know. You know, I, just, I don't know how they do it. I'm just, I used to be a little frustrated um, when people would come back into the ICU repeatedly for some like very obvious cardiac complaint. And I would be frustrated, not at them necessarily for needing ICU care. I would just be like, what, what is, what are the pieces that are missing so that they keep having this problem and they keep coming back to us? Where, why, um, what's the problem? And now I'm like, oh, the entire system is the problem. That's why, because it's not just one thing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's everything. I mean, every part of this stuff is broken and it's no wonder that um, the hospital becomes the de facto safety net for people. Where else are they going to go? Right. Well, so I guess where would you where would you say you are now, and what are you what are you where are you headed moving forward? I guess like, do you feel like you're improving? Do you feel like you're sort of stuck where you are? I feel like I'm sort of stuck mm -hmm. where I am. My PCP said that there's a couple other um, like testing things that we need to do, but that she's really leaning towards this being essentially chronic fatigue syndrome along with everything else. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, you know, I don't want you to feel like you, this is it and I'm going to give up and I will never be better because I've had transient moments of better throughout the course of this, um, this entire thing, usually associated with steroids. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I feel like, I'm like, so what if we did put me on a low dose steroid? And I just lived on that. Like that might make a huge difference to my quality of life. At the same time, 
I don't think a lot of people are eager to put someone who is, you know, 40 years old on a steroid with all of the problems that that can cause, you know, with no end in sight. Like there's no exit plan. So, and I, I get that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, and I don't even know if it would help me now because I haven't been on them in a while, but I definitely felt much better. Those first four months, I would get the steroid and then, you know, and I'd be on like a week and a half of steroids and I would taper off and then I would be right back in the ER and then I would get more steroids and then they would taper off and then I'd be right back in the ER. And I don't, I don't really, I hope that there's more treatment that I can access or that time will do its work. It just seems to be taking a really long time. Sure. Well, and it's such a, like you said, like, it's so funny that we're almost, we wish there we had some uh, excuse to dismiss it. Um, but I think it's like we were saying, we like to have, you know, diagnostic boxes to put things in. And when we don't, it's, it, you know, it's, it's so frustrating. Cause I mean, I mean, you and I have talked in the past about the importance of really putting a diagnostic label on something instead of just calling it by a symptom or something, Right. you right. know, below blood pressure. I don't know what, what that is, but you call it cardiogenic shock. We know how to treat that. So then when all we have is, is symptoms and no diagnoses, we're all kind of floundering. And that's, I mean, I think that's what we're all wishing for. And I guess I'm, I'm curious, you know, you have this whole army of providers who are looking after your, your different problems. And the, I mean, ha, ha, to what extent have they been able to, or at least tried to put diagnostic labels on what's going on with you. I mean, they've, they've done a lot of testing. I know they've ruled out a lot of things. I know, I know like when we were first starting to see some of these longer term symptoms, I was saying, well, it sounds a lot like just post-intensive care syndrome. I mean, we know that people who have been critically ill in the ICU for, you know, months or years sometimes have weakness and cognitive issues and psychological issues and things like that. But you weren't critically ill in the ICU. So that, that doesn't really make sense. Um, right. and I know people say, well, there's probably lung fibrosis after this, but I think you said they didn't really see a lot of fibrosis necessarily in your lungs, maybe other changes. So, right. I mean, what, what do they think you have to the extent they've been able to say, or is it really, there's been very little ability to properly label anything with something that we have a name for yet, I guess. Yeah, so the only diagnostic labels that I've gotten so far have been ones that I would have like sort of met the criteria for that already existed. There's no, as far as I'm aware, there's no new, um, no new diagnoses uh, specifically related to COVID that I have been diagnosed with. I'm looking at labels that have existed for a long time. So what kinds of things? So like chronic fatigue syndrome, right? Um, Things like I got a new diagnosis of Sjogren's. Um, I have low ferritin. So I had eight weeks of infusion therapy. Um, There's pre-existent diagnoses that I'm getting. And in terms of my, I saw a neuropsychologist for my um, cognitive difficulty. And he said, well, the good thing that I can tell you is that you don't have dementia. You don't have um, 
the kinds of problems that that I would have diagnosed with the particular study that we just did. But it's clear that you have something and it's something that's impacting you every day. And I hope that it just (laughs) will get better. But there's no sort of treatment course that I can recommend to you outside of the physical, I mean, the medical treatment that you're already um, getting and psychological support from the psychiatric team that you already have. And I was really hoping that he would be able to add something more um, to the cognitive difficulties that I'm having, but he didn't. So here we are. And it sounds like there's, I mean, there's obviously a lot of room for us to understand it better. I mean, just looking at like a 30,000 foot view, it, it almost seems to me like the fact that there are objective abnormalities on some studies, you know, you said your, your ferritin mm-hmm. is low, things like that, that almost is more promising as far as our ability to eventually understand and maybe treat it better. Because the really hard ones are where everything we can test seems normal. And then we right. then we end up with these labels, like you said, chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, but I mean, just it, I mean, it, it seems like there's some degree of maybe chronic, you know, inflammation you're seeing, or maybe some, you know, some kind of nerve impact from that, um, you know, things right. like that. So it, it, it certainly seems like something that can eventually be understood. We Everything, <laughs> right. Everything keeps pointing back to autoimmune processes, uh, which I think is why the steroids make such a difference for me. Um, but we don't have a, we don't have a very good lead on precisely which aspects um, or which treatment, I guess, would be best for whatever it is that's wrong with me because we haven't, it's not like we've been doing biopsies. We've been doing lots of, um, oh, I did myocardial perfusion scan and um, high resolution CT of my lungs and things like that. And all of my results are abnormal, but they're not so abnormal that you can put a finger on it and say, this right here is specifically the problem and this is why. Yeah. I mean, so. maybe, you know, we, we saw this tsunami of, in some cases, not very well done studies in the acute phase of this disease and what to do about it. And maybe we're getting to the point now where we should be looking at a lot of the same things for treating longer term symptoms, you know. Do, should people be getting steroids or some other kind of anti-inflammatories right. or, you know, disease modifying agents or, or who knows what, but I mean, how else do we understand things? We have to study them and, and, you know, not by, not by just describing them and even putting some kind of syndrome name on it, but you know, in, in a more concrete way, cause you, then you know how to treat it. Right. So I guess, I guess what, what final thoughts would you offer to other other healthcare providers um, coming from someone who, you know, you live in this world, you understand what it's like to be a nurse. You understand what it's like to work in a hospital. You understand the science and the health and stuff. Uh, But I've also been on the other side of the pandemic as well. What, what thoughts do you have to offer to folks? I really feel like as far as I can tell the healthcare workers that I, that I know are exhausted they are exhausted and they are frustrated and they are um, worried. 
And I, I share their frustration and their worry. And I feel like the patients that they're treating, both um, outpatient and inpatient, are in the same place, feeling afraid about what's going to happen. Um, and I think that my fear that I would die from COVID uh, went away pretty rapidly, like right around the four week of symptom mark. But my concern that I'm going to be stuck like this forever, where there's no end in sight, I wonder if a lot of other healthcare workers feel the same way, that mm-hmm. we're going to be surrounded and drowning in COVID forever and that it's never going to leave us. But I think that there's there's some positives now, right? How many vaccines um, have been developed in the past year? I know that a lot of people who are chronically ill are very disturbed by the fact that they can't access vaccination. And I am definitely glad that there's at least some kind of chance for uh, relief on the horizon. And I'm really really sad over the number of people who aren't going to be there um, to see a vaccination program. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of those lives um, were needlessly sacrificed. And there's, you know, no real reason why so many people had to die. And, uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of grieving on a lot of levels by a lot of us. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think you're, you're right. Like there's, this has been a crazy year in terms of it's a a mag magnificent tragedy that sometimes affects us directly. And sometimes we can even forget about for a while. Um, so I, it's good to be reminded of uh, what what's going on out there and what, what people are going through. Thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing your story. Um, I think it's always helpful for those of us in healthcare to hear from a patient. We, we just had a town hall meeting at our hospital yesterday, and they did a live Zoom with a, a couple who had uh, been in the ICU with COVID and had recovered, and they shared their experience. And it's always good to hear that. I think it's extra more so when the person in question is a healthcare provider who speaks our language and, you know, I feel like it's, it's harder for me, not that I would want to do this anyway, but it's harder for me to dismiss someone like you um, than it would be someone who doesn't know healthcare, doesn't understand medicine, um, you know, so thanks for, thanks for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eve. And for everyone else, we'll see you in a couple weeks.